0: And uh, welcome back to the Poplar Tapes. My name is Keegan Irish, and uh, we have a very exciting uh, episode for you today. I am joined here by my friend Alex. Hey, guys. And uh, Ben, uh, Benjamin Pillay. So it's uh, a great honor to uh, have you with us today. And uh, would you mind maybe just giving a brief introduction of like who you are, give people some
1: context? Uh, sure. Uh, so my name is Ben. I'm um, originally from France. I was born there, raised there. Uh, moved to, uh, to Canada when I was 25, I think. Yep. Yeah, something like this. Or 23. Anyway. Um, and so I'm, um, I recently got a Ph.D. from uh, the uh, University of Québec à Montréal in uh, political science, and I worked mostly on um, stuff linked to decolonization and um, particularly on um, what is named anarcho-indigenism. So, like, basically uh, relationships between anarchism and um, indigenous struggle. Awesome. And
0: um, what are you doing nowadays? <laughs> Uh,
1: I, <laughs> um, uh, I know it's the, the pandemic, yeah, it's, so it's, it's like
0: <laughs> where everyone's kind of just like
1: isolated. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to, to be honest, like the pandemic doesn't change much uh, um, my lifestyle because I moved to uh, to Gaspe to, to the Gaspe Peninsula four years ago now uh, while I was finishing my, my PhD. So um, so I live in a small village called Basqueillac. Uh, I'm a translator there, uh, and I also try to do some research, like freelance research, on, on the side. But I'm not, um, I'm not attached to any university right now. And um, I've got a small farm over right there with uh, my partner, and uh, we've got a kid now. So
2: congratulations! Yeah, thanks a lot.
1: Thanks a lot. She's, she's still pretty young; <laughs> she's only uh, a month and a half old
2: okay oh, okay uh, okay yeah. so this is a new development since wow. last time we spoke oh, yeah, definitely. definitely. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's very exciting yeah, yeah, yeah that is so um we uh, we grow some stuff we raise animals and uh we have uh we have a good time generally speaking that's so cool.
0: Mm-hmm. That's so cool. Living yeah. the dream. Oh,
1: yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah totally. <laughs> totally like, we were so thankful that we, we got to Gaspeade when we did because, I mean, yeah. we bought a house like a year and a half ago and we would not be able to do that again now considering really, the number yeah. of people who want to move here. Like, uh, I don't know, the housing market is, is is crazy here now. Wow. It used to be very cheap, but it's, it's getting very, very expensive. Yeah anyway it's canada baby
0: yeah holy fuck! <laughs> <talk. laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. uh, yeah. nice getting another ground floor that's exciting mm-hmm. cool you could you could almost feel like uh you could mentor alex in the ways of translation uh, He's yeah. like a junior.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the
0: junior translator yeah, yeah, yeah exactly mm-hmm. oh uh, do you translate uh into Francais? Uh, oh, I, I
1: do both sides actually. Oh, it's, both sides. Yeah, oh, nice. I've got, I've got a lot of uh, of English speaking um, clients and customers in general because uh, like the place we are in Quebec City, there's um, like we're surrounded by uh, English speaking villages basically. Um, but uh, so we're in we're in the part of 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 uh, Gaspé, which is actually a actually of English speakers. But I've got a few uh, I've got a few French speaking clients and.
0: Stuff instead, so it's English. So, all right, good stuff, man. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, should we shift gears a little bit and chat uh, anarcho-indigenism? Uh, try to understand what this is all about.
2: Sure, awesome, Alex. Do you want to kind of jump in here? And I guess I would like to start by just asking you uh, before we actually jump straight into the anarcho-indigenism stuff. Uh, ask you a bit more about. Uh, how you became interested in, uh, in uh, you know the subject of anarcho-indigenism, but also indigenous politics uh, and histories and uh, and those kinds of issues.
1: Yeah, well, like many of uh, my white peers, uh, I think I became interested in indigenous issues because originally they were exotic to me. So, um, and I think that's that's one of the reasons a lot of, uh, of white people or non-indigenous people get interested in, in those issues. I want to go back in time a little bit. I started university in 2005 when I was in Paris uh, at a French university called uh, Science Uh It's kind of a prestigious university. I don't really know why I was there, uh, except for the fact that I wanted to uh, leave home, go to... Uh, Somewhere else, make my parents proud, and uh, so I was. I was happy. I was. I was a, one of the happy few to get in because it's uh, quite of a competitive entry process. Like you have to pass tests and there's a bunch of quotas. So, um, but anyway, I was passionate about pol- uh, with politics, so um, was not complaining. Uh, after a year spent there, though, and uh, realizing that I was surrounded by the obnoxious sons and daughters of the Parisian petty and great bourgeoisie. I kind of got bored and depressed. <laughs> so, <laughs>
2: yeah,
1: and I was not really... Sounds about right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. I mean, unless you're yourself a Parisian and from the same class, I guess. Uh, I don't I don't see how you could find that cool. Or... Anyway, like... I guess I I some people are critical. I've got friends who were pretty much in the same situation as me and they felt right at home there. So anyway. Okay. Um so you know, we had classes like European compared national law which seemed pretty boring. Uh economics was hell. And uh one of the only reasons that I didn't actually fall into depression was because at the time in two thousand six and two thousand seven there was a huge social movement happening in Paris. A huge really, really. student movement. Very, very interesting. Very fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, during which my my friends and I spent a lot of time demonstrating and um, generally pissing off the pigs. So that, that was a good time. Um, but the second year of school there. I took a class called "The Sacred and the Profane" because uh, we had like um, we had extra, extra curriculum classes that we could take for extra extra credits, basically. And uh, at the time, I was I was I was raised a devout Christian, and at the time, I was still a devout Christian. So uh, seeing a class called "The Sacred and the Profane," I thought, "Oh yeah, well, why not? It's it's, it's it sounds good, so I'll take that." And it was taught by a guy from Chicago, actually from. From the University of Chicago, and it was basically about uh, cultural anthropology. He introduced us to cultural anthropology. A lot of uh, classical guys like Marcel Mauss, Eliade, uh, and, and stuff like that. I, I I can't really overemphasize how much of a gust of fresh air it was in my life at the time, because for the first time, really, I had the uh, the confirmation of something I now take for granted, but. Uh, it, w- it was hard for me to conceive of such a thing um, at the time because when you're brought up and educated in a French environment, uh, universalism is key, right? Like uh, you're you made to think that there are universal values and stuff like that. But taking that class, I realized that human populations, human cultures, human habits, human traditions are so diverse that the idea of any actual universalism or any actual human, universal human value is still a matter of debate. So this opened a lot of doors in, in my mind. It was it was it was a revelation. It was it was a way of escaping also uh, the, the reality I was that mm-hmm. I was living that I was not happy with. Um, so by the end of the second year there the thing is with with School with this this particular school, uh, your third year, the last year of your BA, you have to go abroad and take a class or an internship abroad, like you can't stay in France, you have to go wherever you want, like you can go to, uh, I don't know, Russia if you like, you can go to Japan, you can go pretty much wherever you want with your uh, partnerships. Pretty much everywhere around the world. So, we had to choose a place to go either as an intern or an exchange student and decided to be a problem. So, I wanted two things out of that year abroad. I wanted to go as far as possible from France, and I wanted to study other cultures. So, originally, my plan was to go to New Zealand, but my parents thought this was a little too far. So, uh, and one of my youngest sisters had been to BC uh, for a few months, a year or two before. So, they eventually convinced me to go there. Uh, it was far enough for me, it was on the other side of the world, it was close enough for them to visit me at least once, and they felt confident because they knew the place. And I remember having a presentation at the time at the, at the university where we were told about different universities to go to for our third year, and I remember pretty well the person doing the presentation mentioning UVic, uh, the University of Victoria, as being a a small Laid back university on an island close to the beach, you know, heaven. I already smoked pot at the time, so you know, there was that too. <laughs> uh, And I remember thinking, you know, I mean, fuck, I League universities, fuck, productivity. I'll, I'll go to UVic, I'll learn how to surf, I'll have a good time for a year. So I registered, I got in, and I decided to take uh, indigenous studies and anthropology the rest is history pretty much. I got there. I immediately fell in love with the place. I learned much more in a year there than five years at home. Uh, and being the only white guy, and but not, not the only white guy, but one of the only white guys uh, and the only foreign guy in that class, I was confronted with so many things I didn't know about modern history uh, with Canada, but myself, that it eventually changed me quite deeply. Um, and there's mm-hmm. this one anecdote I love to tell because it really, really stuck with me over the years. And I, uh, I think it had a huge impact on, on what happened uh, the years after that for me. Like we had this lecture about racism uh, in the indigenous studies class that I was taking. Uh, the professor was called uh, Cristina Sawin, She still teaches there. The amazing woman, she's uh, Abenaki. Uh, she specializes on uh, indigenous sports uh, in history. And I remember that after hearing uh, her talk about race for a little while, I raised my hand and I said something which, looking back, sounds pretty stupid and very, very French to me. But you know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's how I felt at the time. You know, and um, it was it was something along the, the line that you know, race races do not exist biologically. You know, that we in France do not take race into consideration uh, in the census, for instance, uh, which is. I mean, it's true for the senses, but we do take racism in consideration. I mean, the, the amount of racism in France shows that race is a big factor in, in the way you live in, the, in, in that country. But, mm-hmm. A lot of anxieties yeah. around that. <laughs> but, anyway, so, you know, we're saying what, you know, what, what should we talk about race? It's a matter of oppression. You know, basically, say, saying something like talking about race is racist, you know, like the, the kind of bullshit that we hear in the media now. Uh, you get the idea. And uh, the the professor's answer uh, was to me was very interesting. She said something like, "and, and I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, right? But that's the way I received it." She said something like, "like listen, you little shit, like we we, we did not create grace, right? Your ancestors came over here with those shitty ideas and imposed them on us. So now you're gonna shut the fuck up. You're gonna sit tight and you can listen." And, <laughs> um, it was it was great. It was uh, it's, really it was it was great. It's one of I think it's the single thing that actually turned my world around at the time. Uh, Because from that day on, I decided that I'd listen, that I'd read, uh, and that I'd write, and that I'd put Indigenous voices forward and not mine. So um, I spent a year doing all that, listening, reading, traveling around BC, meeting new people, uh, meeting people from different places, from different cultures, getting to know Indigenous realities from my very limited point of view. But I did change my life a lot. BC is a really, really great place to get acquainted with uh, indigenous issues because there's a lot of indigenous people living there. It's been colonized pretty pretty recently, yeah. Uh, so there's there's an actual indigenous presence, you know, that we see here. You hear about it a lot. There were strong indigenous communities. Uh, I remember going to Haida Gwaii, and Haida Gwaii is basically indigenous. Like you've got like one or two uh, white villages or settler villages, but the rest is completely indigenous. Um, so, um, so it did change my life a lot because, uh, as I said, up until then, I was still a devout Christian, but the, the discovery of, of residential schools was this trove, uh, was this this straw story that broke the camel's back of, of my faith, basically. Uh, mm-hmm. and I would be, i have already been strained for, by, by a few years of, uh, of left listening. Um, uh, but, um, uh, I was, I was still pretty uh, pretty Christian at the time. So Anyway, after that year at UVic, I went back to France for two years to complete my master's degree, uh, and I decided to do it on the works of uh, one of Canada's leading indigenous intellectuals at the time, uh, who was uh, Tayaki Alfred. And uh, it wasn't a great success, to be honest, for a variety of reasons, but it did strengthen my limited scholarship on indigenous political issues. I met, actually, uh, Tayaki Alfred while I was in Victoria in 2008, because he introduced... Uh, a conference about anarchism and indigenous people and he talked mm-hmm. about uh, his concept of anarcho indigenism that he was working on at the time and I remember thinking, well, that's, 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 uh, that's great, that's, uh, it actually makes sense, and I think it did make sense for me, like, we, we'll probably go back to that later, but I think it, it made sense for me at that time because there's this old stereotype within anarchism about you know, um, uh, indigenous people being the original anarchists, basically. Uh, the same thing that you'll hear in environmental cir- circles that uh, indigenous people are the original environmentalists. It's kind of a shitty stereotype, to be honest, but there um, is there's there is some truth to it, um, depending on how you take that stereotype and how you study it. So uh, this, this is basically what brought me to to that topic later on when I started my PhD. And uh, was
0: Taiki Alfred at UVic at the time that you
1: were... Yeah, well. yeah, At the time, he was the head of the indigenous government's uh, department. He stayed there up until 2017 or 2018, okay. I think. Like he, left among some criticism. Like I don't, I don't remember exactly what it was about. I don't think it was very clear. I don't, I don't think there was very much uh, publicity around it. And there kept, wasn't. Yeah, uh, I
2: remember. I remember seeing like one or two articles, like maybe only one article actually that was published on him leaving. Uh, but yeah, there it, there wasn't a lot of context. It was very yeah. That's that's kind of weird though,
1: because it was. I, I remember he was accused of uh, by a few women of uh, something related to harassment mm-hmm. or toxic work environment. But uh, but I tried to research it like uh, the other day when mm-hmm. I when I was uh, preparing for an interview, and I, I only found uh, one of these. I think it was uh, it was an article by the Eastern Door. It was. Mostly Taiaki telling his version of the story, so you don't really know what happened, but um, anyway. yeah, kind of hard to make yeah. sense of that, yeah.
2: Um, yeah, so uh, uh, from, from that, I guess we can move on to just uh, kind of the the, the concept of anarcho- anarcho-indigenism. So in uh, 2019, you and uh, your uh, thesis director, uh, is it Francis Dupuis-Derry? Francis Dupuis-Derry, yeah. Okay, Francis <laughs> Dupuy derry uh, uh, you, you both um, collaborated and published a uh, book that's a collection of uh, interviews with different indigenous uh, thinkers, artists, activists, land defenders, and water protectors. Mm-hmm. Um so some, some of these people are, you know, Frida Houston. lots of people probably recognize uh, uh, that name from uh, the Wet'suwet'en protests last year. Uh, uh, Véronique Hébert, uh, Gord Hill is another one that people really know, uh, Cl- Clifton uh, uh, Ariwakete, Nicholas, mm-hmm. and, uh, and others. And I'm just wondering, uh, yeah, how, how did you guys uh, uh, end up uh, working together and uh, deciding on, that you wanted to create this book?
1: Yeah. So I first met Francis in 2012, uh, when I started my PhD. When I was uh, I was in Montreal. I uh, moved to Montreal from BC in 2011. And uh, by 2012, I decided that I would uh, enter a PhD program in, uh, in Quebec. So I didn't really know where to go. I uh, sort of tried to get into McGill, Concordia, the University of Montréal, but... I didn't really have any idea of what I was going to do for my PhD, so I think it it, it showed in my uh, proposal or the the file I sent them, so uh, I didn't get in. So in 2012, so it was the 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 printemps érable and I was staying at France, uh, who were anarchists too. So I think they told me about Francis at some point that, uh, or I read an article that they they had published in uh, in a newspaper or something like this. I figured, well, you know. There's uh, an anarchist professor. Maybe this is my chance to work on anarcho-indigenism because I couldn't really do it during my master's degree because it wasn't accepted by my supervisor. Like, uh, working on indigenous issues while in in France was already exotic enough for them. So uh, working on uh, anarchism wasn't deemed serious enough for that kind of university. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, well, you know, that's uh, that's France for you. Yeah, yeah but um, so anyway, so I wrote to Francis saying, "Well, you know, I've got uh, I'd like to do a PhD about this idea about working on American indigenism. Is it something that would interest you?" And uh, he was very excited about it from the beginning. Like uh, he told me later on that at, at first the. Like, to himself like ah oh, just another fucking french guy coming over here and trying to uh, work on uh, indigenous people and like whatever but uh we talked a little bit <laughs> this is apparently called well, apparently <laughs> apparently <laughs> <laughs> uh or apparently I wasn't the first one to do that the fact that i had worked on uh tayaki Alf- alfred's uh work mm-hmm. and and books uh, was a good uh, a good sign to him, I think. So uh, he accepted to be my, my supervisor. And originally, in, in so in 2012, you had the pipeline out, and then in December, I didn't know more, sorry. In 2013, we sat down, uh, for instance, and I and a few other people uh, who were uh, working on indigenous issues as well, and uh, we tried to set up a two or three day conference about Idol no more. more. Uh, it did not go through for many different reasons. They're not really worth mentioning, but it didn't work. Uh, but we still thought that, you know, we need to talk about indigenous issues, particularly at the UCAM where, you know, it's a very, uh, it's a very Kibli Kwa University where for a very long time, it's still now indigenous issues are, looked at through a very specific lens. You know, uh, there's there's actually no issue of li- of looking at those uh, at, at uh, indigenous political issues through or at indigenous issues through the lens of uh, anthropology or history or religion studies or whatever. But when it's when it comes to uh, politics, it's a bit more complicated, uh, and I think it is due to uh, the the history of uh, of the UK being a, a a fortress of the uh, communist
2: uh, movement uh, in, in, really? in Quebec. For I might be over
1: exaggerating, but I think it's uh, I think it's uh, it has something to do with that. So anyway, um, Francis is an avid writer. He has a lot of books out there, but is is also not very well funded as a researcher because uh, because he's a francophone and because he works on anarchism <laughs> and feminism, so uh, or anti-feminism actually. So um, so he doesn't really have a lot of uh, money to uh, to give his students to support them. So one of the ways that he supports his uh, students student study supervises, is by helping them publish stuff. So we were aware of the, the, the conversation around our indigenism but we were also aware that this conversation was happening mostly within the anarchist milieu, which in Francophone, Quebec, at least is very, very white. Uh, and is very Quebec-centered, uh, which means that the argument about Quebec sovereignty is never, never really far. And at the time, uh, personally speaking, in 2013, I was becoming very, or more and more uneasy with being a white guy from France working on indigenous issues because there's a lot of appropriation of indigenous knowledge and uh, indigenous suffering by academics uh, who end up using those knowledge and suffering to further their own career. So I was gradually shifting my research from indigenous issues to colonialism and particularly to settler colonialism in order to mostly interrogate my, my, my own position and the position on the groups that I was part of. Uh, and I know Francis feels the same, like he has experienced the same the same kind of uneasiness. Uh, particularly regarding his role as a male researcher working on feminist and women's issues. And I think that's one of the reasons why he works mostly on um, anti feminism and um, um, actual feminism, even though he teaches uh, uh, some, some classes in, uh, on feminism.
2: And just, just like for, uh, uh, just for clarity, like, uh, when, when you're, uh, when he's working on anti-feminism, you mean just like people who are, uh, like he's studying the groups that are critiquing f- feminism as a uh, feminist movements and this kind of thing? Or?
1: Yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, studying, uh, the masculineist discourse, basically. Right,
2: right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, In order to critique it and oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. break yeah, yeah. it apart and stuff. Yeah, yeah, It's not like speak. a Jordan yeah. Peterson of Quebec or something. Really
1: far yeah. from that. But, you know, like, yeah. he's, uh, he's, he's always like he talks. Whenever you talk about when you talk uh, about it to him, like he's always kind of pissed that whenever there's something about feminism that. A lot of journalists will call him before calling any female researcher that work, who works on the same issues and who's probably better at it uh so i know he feels a lot of uneasiness, and I, I know that he's been criticized uh in the feminist milieu for for being a little bit too popular with journalists uh He's a really good guy and he's uh he's doing a lot of good things to, to try and, and, and make things better. So but anyway. So it was clear uh for us that if we wanted to bring that conversation about anarcho indigenism out of white circles that we had to, if we wanted to actively participate in making it something bigger, uh, we had to stand back and we had to use that, that platform that we have to amplify the voices of, of people who do not benefit from this book by doing it. And uh, so we figured that a book of interviews with uh, various indigenous anarchists or land defenders or water defenders who were familiar with anarchism was uh, the best solution we had. Ever. So yeah, we decided that uh, it would be, it, would, it was easy for Francis to, to work on a book because he's got a really good relationship with his uh editor, uh Izidus. Uh so that's that's basically how we started to
0: to to work on the book. Super cool. It's interesting, you know. I'm reading uh like Wasase, yeah. the uh book by Tayaki Ty- Alfred. And uh, there's a number of interviews in there as well. And so it's almost like the interview style is sort of built into maybe some of the inspirations for this uh Way of theorizing as well,
1: uh, or at least there's an interesting connection. Yeah, there's probably a connection, although I know that Tayaki did that because uh, he wanted to structure his book the way knowledge transmission is structured traditionally. And uh, the Wait, the
2: Haudenosaunee, or? Haudenosaunee, Sorry,
1: that
2: that that is interesting. Actually, that like style of uh, theorizing, because I'm even just theorizing about the way that we traditionally. Th- think of people, you know, publishing works and, uh, you know, writing a thesis or uh, things like this, this kind of activity is like very individualized. And it's cool to make the form acknowledge more of uh, more of the fact that yes, like language is collective in this sense. I mean, it is in a a way in, in academic writing, like we do have quotations and excerpts and this kind of thing. But it doesn't have the same kind of, um, prominence maybe as like an interview style or collection mm-hmm. does maybe or something like this.
0: Yeah. Like the classic academic monograph is sort of built around a, an individual's voice, exactly. You yeah, know, yeah. and it, it is, uh, a very kind of Euro American way of constructing knowledge. And, um, it's interesting to, uh, or you know, creative and disruptive to kind of bring together these multiple voices um, in in the publishing. So I think that's. Really and also cool.
1: very challenging, like as a process of publishing a book. Like if you actually want to be uh, accountable to the people who have been interviewed, it's it's a longer process as well. Like that's what we realized down the line. I don't regret it at all. Like I think we did a great right thing, but it's uh, it took us six years to uh to publish a book that's not that long you know and and, and yeah. at least two or three of the interviews had been published somewhere else before so um it's good it's good to do that it's good to do that because it shows that accountability is not easy but it's it is essential plus i mean there's just so many i mean when, when we talk about anarcho indigenism like there's never any difficulty finding the opinion of the white guy on that topic but you never hear indigenous people on the topic Mostly because it is even though the concept was created by Tayaki Alfred, it doesn't really speak so much to the reality of indigenous people, to be very honest. But yeah, it's a focus that has been put there by by anarchists themselves.
2: Yeah, yeah. I I actually noticed that reading reading uh, your book, like uh like I think Gord Hill, you know, he says he prefers like anti-colonialism and anti-capitalism over something like anarcho-indigenism. They say um, it's really anarchists that can learn how to like, learn how to sharpen their, uh, their knowledge or, uh, gain new insights into the anarchist movement, uh, from learning about these other cultures, basically, and these other political forms and these other forms of governance and organizing. So it's, uh, it is interesting, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, that, uh, that it's like it's a it's a political uh, term that like has entered into I guess like French and English discourse, but that is coming from uh, Haudenosaunee, like a member of the Haudenosaunee, right? Uh, or I guess collectivity of people actually mm-hmm. um, started theorizing this term. But I don't know. I I find that uh, interesting because it's like the opposite direction of what the history of uh, the relationship between like uh, early colonists and settlers. And indigenous peoples was which was us to like invent terminology to interpret and name all of these uh like people who were living here
1: you gotta remember though that um the concept was created by tayaki alfred but he abandoned it pretty pretty quickly because um i never really knew why like i remember uh talking about it with them and uh because we did at least one interview with him about it and uh i met him again in montreal uh, I think a year or two after that, so we, we, we got a chance to, to talk about it. From what I remember, he stopped working on it because it, it kind of got complicated between the relationships, uh, got a little bit complicated between him and I don't, I don't know if it was the only uh, indigenous scholar working on it, but between him and the non uh actors, I don't know if they were scholars, but actors uh, who were anarchists. Working on that uh, on that concept, and after a little while, he I don't know I think he he, he still thinks that there's there's some validity to uh, to the concept somehow that there's there's definitely links there, but the emphasis on the on, on the concept was really put there by white anarchists who came after that and said, oh you know that concept is really interesting I'm, I'm going to take that and I'm going to try to work on it, and uh, there's um, uh, particularly uh, Adam Lewis. Who's in, uh, in Ontario? I don't remember exactly in which university he, he was. Like uh, he's one of the other anarchy scholars who decided to work on the concept. I know Richard Day was was uh, was really into it also for a little while. But you no, know, I've I've never heard that concept, or I've never heard any other uh, indigenous scholar uh, using that concept or trying to work on it. So it's uh, it goes both ways uh, if you like.
2: Yeah. So. Uh... When you guys were uh, putting the book together, uh, what motivated your uh, you know decisions on who to include in the book? And were there people that you wanted to include that uh, you know you were unable to reach, or things fell fell apart, or didn't you know follow through?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, well, you know, um, as I said, the book of interviews is quite a quite a challenge to put together, and. Uh, Generally speaking, publishing a book is essentially a process of refining ideas over and over again, right? So uh, you start with a big idea, you go forward, you face obstacles, and you have to figure out ways to fulfill your goals without losing yourself and the people you work with. So uh, originally, we wanted to have a little more people contributing to that book, but it was very very, very important for us from the beginning to have as many women as men uh, in terms of interviews. I don't remember precisely how many people we wanted to include in the book originally, but it was. I remember it was supposed to be a little bigger. What became very clear very soon is that, very quickly, sorry, is that we have a hard time finding a lot of people to interview. Uh, because anarchism is not very popular. It's a fringe movement, uh, no matter how oh, much conservative pilots like to talk about the so-called freedom and so on. but And anarchists of, colors, uh, of color are few, and they're usually grassroots activists. Uh, so it's not always re- easy to reach them. And when you do, they don't always want to talk publicly with, about what they do. And uh, there's, there's a lot of tensions between grassroots milieus and the university world as well, uh, and mm-hmm. for good reasons, uh, in my opinion. So we started with the people we knew. Uh, so mainly, that was Tayaki Alfred, uh, Gore Hill, and Clifton Nicholas. And we contacted other people who thought might be interested, such as uh, Canavis Manuel, uh, who introduced us to other people, and so on. So we did a couple of interviews in person with some people, which was only the first step. Then we had to review, we had to edit, we had to translate uh, most of the interviews, turn them into reading material. Uh, and this is when things became a little bit complicated. Because uh, for me, it was absolutely non-negotiable uh, that we get the consent of all the interviews before printing anything that wasn't exactly what he had said on tape. And when you write something that was said on tape, it is never exactly the same thing. You have to edit. It's, it's a lot. It's it's a huge editing process because some people some people we speak in a very clear way, you know, so you can just uh, transcript everything and it's 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 readable text. Uh, other people, you actually need to do a lot of editing because it's, it's completely un-understandable if you just use the transcript. That meant that we, were, uh, that we had to uh, contact people at least two or three times between the actual interviews and the printing of the book, which was not always possible. I mean, uh, I interviewed certain people that I could not reach later on, so we had to drop the interviews, basically. Yeah, that is very unfortunate. And uh, so it it was a long process. It took six years. And, you know, in six years, some people drop out. Some people start doing other stuff. Some people fall into depression. Some forget about you. Some are not reachable anymore. So, well, you know... um, we, we dropped one or two interviews, and we tried to replace those with what we had or what was available at the time. So that's one of the reasons why we have like, interviews like uh, Rob Sandler Denver Ortiz, or, or, um, or Fredo Eusen, because uh, we, I did not interview Fredo Eusen. You know, I just, yeah, I just wanted to add that, you know, it's, uh, it's okay for people to drop out, because, you know, land defenders particularly, and grassroots activists in general, face a lot of pressure from all directions, they face pressure from the state, they face pressure from society, they face pressure from their own community, and it's it becomes really exhausting. So uh, a lot of them do not manage to stick around for a very long time. And those who do, do not necessarily want to talk to people like us, because they don't necessarily trust academics. And uh, honestly, I, I, I really get that. Um, and uh, I don't really know what to do if I wear in their shoes, So shoes.
0: Um, yeah. So um, for listeners who may be uh, more unfamiliar with the terms decolonization and uh, anarchism um, or who kind of hear these terms thrown around but uh, the meaning is less clear to them. Uh, it might be worthwhile to provide kind of a working definition of these terms. Uh, would you be able to provide some historical context uh, for these political traditions? And how have you come to
1: understand them in your own work? Sure. Well, you know, uh, these, are, these are big words, right? So uh, yeah. I'm, I'm oh, sure no. you'd be able to find... Very big. Yeah, <laughs> very, very big, actually. <laughs> <laughs> <Right you. laughs> um, so they have a lot of history. And uh, I'm sure you'd be able to find as many definitions of anarchism and decolonization as there are anarchists and decolonial activists. So, I'll try to give you working definitions, but uh, you should keep in mind that those definitions are my personal interpretation, my personal take. You uh, know, all the elements that I'm going to mention, I found in other people's works and are not my invention. Like I didn't invent anything about that. So, about anarchism, like uh, usually. Uh, One of the ways of uh, thinking about anarchism is to say that there are at least two traditions of anarchism, like the anarchism with a a capital A and anarchism without a capital A. Uh, When we talk about, or when people talk about anarchism with a capital A, they usually talk about the anarchist tradition that stemmed from uh, 19th century Europe, Uh, the first international the workers' communities, uh, anarchist workers' movements, uh, that were actually really big until the Second World War. Like we, we we tend to forget about it, but anarchists were the capital enemy for a lot of states uh, at the end of the nineteenth century. Like they actually killed people. You know they were they killed people. They killed politicians. They killed officials. They killed you know big business leaders. Uh, they, they were an actual real threat. So I, I won't go into uh too much details regarding this first anarchist movement because it's it is a little bit complicated, to be honest. Uh I'm not I'm not a specialist uh, of of this period of time and it harkens back to complicated debates within leftist circles of the time as well. And there's generally a lot of documentation on those movements for anybody who wants to learn more about them. So um and usually when you have like books about anarchist history, they usually talk about that particular period, of time. So, so nowadays the, the, the type of anarchism that we, we that, that we witness is Much more diverse, uh, and it hosts a variety of tendencies, from traditional workers and syndicalist tendencies to, uh, I don't know, like uh, primitivist uh, tendencies, for instance. So what unites all these varied ideologies is a set of core beliefs, and namely, I think the main core beliefs are the idea that oppression and violence stems from centralized systems of power and coercion, and from the agonistic competition between individuals that is promoted by liberalism and capitalism. Uh, so in other words, anarchists usually tend to f- fight for horizontal systems of solidarity and mutual aid. Uh, they tend to fight against this state of paradise and against capitalism in general. And uh, typically, the ideal anarchist society would be made of small groups of locally autonomous people working collectively for the great good. You uh, have good examples of that uh, during the, the Spanish Civil War, for instance, uh, these are actually pretty famous uh, examples of, uh, of anarchism put into practice. Basically, that's, that's I'd say that would be Soviets with a, a central state um, more or less, you know. So anarchism is a philosophy that has moral, political, economic implications. Uh, individual freedom and constant is cardinal. Uh, direct action, too. Uh, put collective accountability, mutual aid, harm reduction, and nonviolence, are also very essential to that philosophy. So it's a set of sometimes competing ideas that are put together in practice. And this is one of the reasons why anarchists think of anarchism less as a philosophy and more as a mode of action that only works well when it's, uh, I would say, contextualized and embedded in the community, particularly in the community built upon trust and risk So personally, to me, anarchism is if not the most valid, one of the most valid political culture in the Western world, uh, because its priority is people, freedom, and joy over states, profits, and consumption. So uh, going forward with decolonization, decolonization is a tricky concept too, uh, because it has a long history, and like anarchism, its, it's meaning changed uh, over time and became more and more complex. For quite a long time, decolonization was thought as putting an end to colonialism understood as the dependency of colonies towards colonial powers, you know, such as Spain, Portugal, France, Great Britain, and so on. So for a while, particularly after World War II, uh, decolonization meant political independence, independence, like for India, Algeria, and so on. But... Pretty soon, people in these new independent states started noticing that political independence did not necessarily mean the end of colonial oppression. I mean, even before uh, independence, people like intellectuals like Fanon, for instance, uh, wrote about it, you know, saying that decolonizing is not only about making the uh, invaders uh, leave, you know, it's, it's, it's... there's something within that we have to to, 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 figure, to figure out. Yeah, this, uh, I
0: I recently read a book about, uh, um, about uh, Bhagat Singh, the uh, Indian revolutionary, and he has similarly before independence is uh, talking about this, where you know if you you can kick out the British, but you're just going to replace them with a kind of like brown bourgeois, unless you deal with these underlying structures, right? Uh, exactly.
1: Exactly. So, um, and well, it's true because like political and economic dependency kept existing between the North and the South, between the old imperial powers, uh, and the former colonies, but that's, that's how people thought about decolonization for a while. And, um, that particular model of decolonization actually was, or that particular concept of decolonization could even be supported by, uh, colonial powers like the U S or Canada, because it could be applied. To their own territory, you know. Like for a long while, the U.S. presented themselves as being the first decolonized country in the world because they had, you know, became independent from from Britain
2: in right, yeah. the eighteenth century. <laughs> yeah. but it's, it's,
1: it sounds crazy now, but it's it's actually the way people thought about uh, colonialism or colonization and decolonization after the Second World War. Because, and this is this is the definition of colonialism or colonization that is used by the UN because um, I don't remember exactly the, the, the date, but shortly after the Second World War, um, it became clear that, you know, uh, colonialism wasn't good anymore, uh, particularly because for the first time, and this is something that César said that was, that was, that was really uh, really on point, is that with Nazism, for the first time, Europeans lived uh, or experienced what they, had, uh, what they had imposed on other people before, you know. Yeah, exactly. um, after the Second World War, it became it wasn't politically accepted uh, anymore, or became less politically accepted anymore to uh, to uh, defend colonization. But at, at the time at the UN, there was this um, this competing interpretation of, of, of colonialism, because at, at the time. I think Belgium had already uh, left uh, Congo and uh, they fought at the UN so that uh, colonialism would be uh, generally accepted as meaning uh, domination of a country over another, you know, controlling the territory. But uh, former imperial powers or still imperial powers like the US and Great Britain fought uh, tooth and nail to have another definition put forward, uh, which is what we call the the deep water thesis or the blue water thesis, which means that according to the UN for a colonial situation to exist, there must be a geographical distance between the colony and the mother country. So, uh, which is a very weird, is, uh, I don't know if it's a weird way of understanding colonialism, but it's a way of understanding colonialism that is based on uh, a certain type of colonialism, which is not necessarily settler colonialism, but it's uh, franchise colonialism, which means like, you know, you have, like, like pretty much like, like the Dutch did. Uh, the Dutch yeah. for a very long time, uh, an empire that was made of small, you know, small places where small markets basically all around the world where you, you could, you know, get all the resources they wanted, but you did not really have, like, vast territories under their control uh, compared to, to, to the British Empire where you had, like, British people all over the world, basically, right? So, with that definition, the US or Canada was not considered a colonial state. But there was a shift in this understanding of colonialism thanks to uh, post colonialism and decolonial thinking, as well as the renewal of the study of settler uh, which brought about a shift in the way we think about decolonization. I kind of feel the need to mention that uh, this shift was already underway even before post-colonialism and decolonial thinking. Because if you've ever read people like Fanon, for instance, you know that they square wary at time about reducing colonialism as merely a political problem. So, And, and so did a lot of uh, other authors of this time and before. So, um, But I remember witnessing this this shift, because when I started my bachelor in 2005, and even up until 2010, decolonization was not a word you'd hear a lot. Like It was not really under, on the radar of, uh, of, of many scholars. Uh, or people in general. People started to talk a lot more about decolonization around 10 years ago. And one of the biggest articles that put it on the map, I think, in North America is, um, or at least in uh, in the academia, is the article by Yiftach and Yang's, uh Yang, sorry, called uh, "Decolonization is Not a Metaphor." <laughs> right. I, I mentioned postcolonialism and decolonial thinking earlier, but neither of these traditions actually used the concept of decolonization very much. Like it says, it's, it's not. It's not a very—it's not a core concept for them necessarily. Uh, to talk about colonialism, to talk about coloniality, but they seldom take the time to actually think about decolonization. Mostly because it's easier to articulate criticism and analysis and uh, and analysis, sorry, about decoloniza- uh, about colonialism, sorry. But decolonization is a political project, right? So it is normative. Uh, and scholars usually tend to shy away from uh, normative concepts or normative stuff. That, that's what it is. Uh, so most of the impetus regarding the coming back of decolonization as, 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 as a political concept came from political movements uh, and and some of their allies uh, within uh, the university, the world of, yeah, within the university. That's so that's... That's that's quite a long introduction to what decolonization means or might mean, but I thought it's it's important to know what these think about, and and um, and to show also that the way that we think about decolonization now, particularly in the Americas, has a lot to do with how we think about colonialism uh, and particularly settler colonialism and how colonialism shapes our uh, everyday reality. So it has a lot to do with acknowledging that we live in societies that are built on illegitimate foundations and um, societies that are the product of violence targeted towards certain communities at the benefit of others. And so pretty much like what I said about anarchism, uh, decolonization has moral, political, economic, uh, individual and collective implications. And so there's a lot of ways to look at it, really. What's certain, though, is that decolonization is uh, never easy, that decolonization is revolutionary that it is disturbing, and that it is unsettling. So I think there are two ways of giving a sort of definition of what decolonization is. Uh, First would be by looking at what it's not, and then by looking at a few complementary ways that it can work out. So I'll try to you some uh, specific examples of what I think personally are important aspects of decolonization. What decolonization is not... uh, It's not it's not going back in time to a mythical golden age, you know? know. Yeah. So it's not that it's not reconciliation. I'm not saying that reconciliation and decolonization are necessarily incompatible depending on how you define reconciliation. I think that reconciliation, the way we talk about it in Canada as a state sponsored agenda is not compatible with decolonization. Uh, So decolonization is not state sponsored either. And, We'll, we'll <laughs> come back later <laughs> on <for> that. <laughs> <combat. Yeah. laughs> yeah. um, repeating what, what uh, Yves Tuck and Wen Young said, it's not, a, it's not a metaphor for something else. Um, and it's not easy um, either. So, what it is, um, I think it is decolonization is about undoing past wrongdoings. Uh, so there's just uh, an aspect of decolonization that that is about uh, reparations. Yeah. Uh, it is mm-hmm. also indigenous-centered. There are conflicting or or competing interpretations of decolonization in that regard because if you look south of the border, the uh, the importance of uh, anti-black uh, racism in the U.S. Uh, and the importance of racism uh, in the form of slavery, you know, racism as, as an actual system of production in the U.S., makes it so that uh, definition, the definitions of decolonization in the U.S. Uh, do not only center indigenous people, but also give a lot of, uh, a lot of space for uh, um, black thought, black practices, uh, and so on. So I said indigenous centered because I look at decolonization mostly in Canada or in what is called Canada, where there's also racism and anti-black racism, but like uh, the structure deep of the Canadian economy was not shaped uh, the way it was shaped by slavery, by mass slavery. Uh, in the U.S. You know, we, we did not have plantations where thousands of slaves were... Slavery existed, but it was domestic slavery. Uh, so we could say it is indigenous-centered, but it's it's also about other categories of people that were impacted by uh, colonialism and by colonization. Um, it is also disturbing and revolutionary, as I said earlier. I feel the need to point out that it's a collective endeavor. There, there are individual aspects to it, uh, obviously, but... The reason I'm saying that it is it is a collective endeavor because is because I haven't done that for a while, but I'm pretty sure that if you type decolonization in Google, you'll find like a vast amount of, uh, of pages about uh, decolonizing your diet, decolonizing yoga, <laughs> decolonizing your work ethics, decolonizing capitalism, you, know? you, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, decolonizing and, the workplace.
0: That would be precisely the metaphor that decolonization is not, right? <laughs> exactly exactly,
1: exactly. I, i'm not saying that you cannot decolonize your diet or i'm not saying that you cannot decolonize your good you know I mean, it's, it's probably an argument to make <laughs> it, but i think that um, at, at, at the root of, of decolonization there's, there's something else you know it's 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 a little bit more disturbing let's say you know for for the whole society um and I think land and territory should be at the core of decolonizing efforts. Uh, to be there on us. so that's why it is also collective. It's not only land back, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's that's mm-hmm. um, yeah. So that's uh, you know, I, maybe we can start with that. It's yeah, that be, was awesome.
2: Yeah, that was great. Yeah, those are great answers. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so I, I I do like this point about not going back. Um, to a golden age either right and uh, these kind of and yet what is this kind of future that we're Um, need to be moving into if it is a decolonized future you know it's not this reconciliatory thing either which says oh you know if we can just get along a little better in our multicultural framework that would be awesome but we're going to leave these fundamental kind of uh, economic structures we're going to leave the way in which land is um, kind of owned and divided up along uh, the lines between indigenous and settler and so on like we're going to leave all that untouched That's Stuff's kind of off the table in advance, you know? Um, so I do think it's helpful to just like call that out and say, yeah, that's, that's precisely not uh, a decolonization. That might be some kind of political <laughs> project, but it's a very kind of uh, anemic and sad uh, political project that will just assuage the guilt of some settlers maybe, and uh, will re-legitimate uh, some of the existing colonial structures. Right. Um, and so I think it, it is helpful yeah. to just really, draw that stuff out clearly um, so yeah thanks for that so uh, just kind of pulling on this thread a little more splitting some hairs a little bit for this next question uh <laughs> <laughs> Yes, there are um, debates about how to distinguish between post-colonialism and decolonization. Uh, people can also have a tendency to conflate the two terms. Um, what are the distinguishing features of the terms, and is the difference
1: important? Well, you know, um, again, like these are two uh, very... Yeah. big terms, we should keep in mind that those terms are the topic of a vast literature, alright? So, uh, I'm not going to be able to uh, repeat all that literature, mostly because I don't yeah. know it that well. <laughs> Yeah, maybe uh, should yeah, say yeah. In, your, yeah.
0: in your opinion, you know, in your view.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, got, I've, got, uh, I've got a few things to say about that, though. But, um, you know, I, I think people were not aware of that literature might sometimes conflate the two terms, but I think that, and it might be a bit too harsh to say that that way, but I think it is the product of ignorance, um, and it is no surprise to me that this mix-up between post and decoloniality or decolonization is often heard from right-wing individuals and pundits who, by definition, do not really care about reading or learning new material. So, um, <laughs> there's being said... Um, <laughs> Post-colonialism and decoloniality have things in common, right? Uh, One of those things in common is the goal of, uh, quote-unquote, provincializing Europe, which means giving credit to what Europe has done, but also putting Europe and European modernity back to their rightful place of being only a relatively small part of the world and of world history, Right. Uh, when we think of modernity, when we talk about modernity in general, we tend to actually talk of European or Euro-American modernity, uh, which is actually supporting the claim of the enlightenment that European values are universal values, which down the line brings us to the Eurocentric or Western-centric idea that West is Later best. play NATO, baby. <laughs> yeah, I- <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it's, it's an idea that completely erases the contribution of other civilizations, right, to the present world, uh, and it completely erases that those supposedly universal European principles or values became allegedly universal through... Erasure and destruction of other cultures through colonialism and imperialism. So, when we talk about post-colonialism, we talk about uh, an intellectual movement which started with the start is the start of that movement is usually uh, thought of as the publishing of Edward Side's book on Orientalism mm-hmm. in nineteen seventy seven. Mm-hmm. So, this intellectual tradition offers a criticism of the conception of colonialism put forward by Tuan. So, yeah, uh, so criticism of the conception of of that particular conception of colonialism, which presents colonialism as being only a matter of political domination of one state over a foreign society through the control of the state of Paris. Uh, what postcolonial thinkers essentially say is that uh, the official end of colonialism uh, through national liberation struggles and struggles for independence was not really the end of colonialism, right? Because the categories and relationships, that structure, that that north-south dependency were kept intact. Uh, So that's the whole uh, debate or idea uh, regarding the uh, post-prefix and and post-colonialism. It's to show that the so-called post-colonial era might not be so different from the colonial era. We essentially find the same idea in uh, decolonial literature under the concept of coloniality. For the authors of the group called uh, Modernity, Coloniality, which is a group of Latin American thinkers who started working on the relationship between modernity and colonialism and coloniality in the 80s. Uh, Coloniality is what survived the end of formal colonialism following the independence of former colonies. So if we want to sum up the differences between those two literatures, uh, I think they're bound to two main things. First, those two literatures, like postcolonialism and uh, decoloniality, they're not attached to the analysis of the same systems, of the same cultures, of the same traditions. Uh, typically, post-colonial literature is very much centered on the East, the Middle East, and the former British Empire. Uh, whereas, decolonial literature is more centered on Latin America, the Caribbean space, and uh, North America, to some extent. The other thing, the second thing that I, that I mentioned, is that uh, post post-colonialism, post-colonialism, sorry, does not talk about coloniality. Uh, post-colonial thinkers talk about colonialism and its aftermaths. Decolonial literature talks about coloniality because colonialism is understood in this literature as being a formal political structure, and coloniality as being everything stemming from colonialism that has survived the end of formal colonialism. I think there's a third point also that should be mentioned, but um, given that my personal scholarship on uh, postcolonialism is limited, uh, what I'm going to say should not be taken for granted and people should investigate what I'm saying to make sure that I'm not talking out of my ass. all right? So um, it, it seems to me that the goals of postcolonialism and decoloniality are, so, uh, as I said earlier, to provide a criticism of European modernity and Eurocentrism, which, when they're put into practical terms, can result in different political mechanisms, right? They can result in cultural relativism, they can also result in what... Uh, you think it's called Thuriversalism, which is essentially fighting for a world where different worlds can coexist, which is an idea that you find in Spatismo, for instance. Um, what is that? El mundo donde I don't remember the, the the whole quote, but uh, I put it in my PhD dissertation, so. <laughs> 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 To me, these two things are different from when we talk. When we talk about decolonization, you know, and especially when we talk about decolonization nowadays, um, it, to me it seems that postcolonialism and decoloniality are mostly intellectual movements that exist within academia. But I don't think they really translate into practical political movements. Um, on the contrary, decolonization is a political project. It is based on indigenous resurgence. Uh, on the rematriation of indigenous territories and on the dissent, of settler states, uh, not only of settler states, but of
0: settler societies and settler sciences. Yeah, it's interesting that the um, connection that you drew out right at the beginning there between post-colonialism and uh, decolonial literatures uh, was this kind of uh, critique of Euro-modernity as uh, a hegemonic vision of what uh, modernity is, and uh, as this kind of uh, completion of this this Enlightenment project of the universalization of these uh, values of you know human rights and so on and so forth, and uh, I just thought that connected nicely back to uh, uh, what you were saying was one of the first moments that kind of set you on this uh, whole trajectory um, where there was this uh, criticism in the cultural anthropology class of the idea that um, value is universal, you know, this very French idea. And, um, uh, you know, certainly that is it's huge in the English world as well there's this kind of assumption that you know these these values and the these these systems are, are universalizable in this way which is very relevant and important and I think even you see this it's so common even in I, I I'm just thinking about conversations that I have with people who are you know perfectly well-meaning and you know like to uh, think of themselves as relatively progressive in this kind of thing liberal uh folks who yeah kind of grow up in the environment of like Canadian liberalism so often when we hear about um, indigenous um, struggles and so on, uh, there's this impulse where it's like, oh, yeah, like there needs to be this recognition by the courts of uh, these indigenous rights. Right. And this is seen as like a very kind of like radical idea and demand. And um, there's something there where it's like, isn't that just like a reproduction of this same idea of the Euro-modernity, of the legitimacy of these um, universal kind of European Enlightenment values that justice is to be found within these court systems, that that's why we need to have uh, these forms of
1: recognition? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. That's it's, it's a good point. Uh, I, would, I would mitigate, though, that point mm-hmm. a little bit by saying that um, I do not think that uh, court recognition – is, is radical or is revolutionary? However, there's different there's different layers to uh, the to fight, right? And having your rights recognized by a court, however limited that recognition is, is always better than not having rights recognized. Yeah, for sure. So, um, so yeah, definitely. Does this. this I understand what you mean by the emphasis that some some people and, and people who like to think of the as, as being progressive uh, on uh, on recognition by the courts, uh, because we're so used to this idea, you know, of the, the, the rule of law and, and and stuff like that, that we, we never questioned the, the origins of, of this rule of law and and whether it relies on something that's legitimate or not. Uh, but at the same time, I always try to remember that. Sometimes radicalism mm-hmm. is a privilege, yeah, right? Yeah, for sure. That's that's uh, and um, and what when we're not part of those communities, it's 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 hard to make the difference between what's essential and what's not for people on the ground. And even though I think that it's that recognition by the courts is a waste of time, that it's a waste of money, that it puts a lot of the indigenous communities in dependency uh, towards the state because that money comes from somewhere and it comes from <laughs> the states. You know, like uh when they when, when communities have to hire uh lawyers to represent themselves in court because the state, Canadian state, federal state and the provincial governments will uh, you know, do whatever they can to stall uh the processes, uh all that money is it's just those communities are just putting themselves in debt, you know, to have their rights recognized and they're not even being Recognized properly, and particularly when you have like those those processes of of uh, modern treaties or like extension uh, it, the the, uh, the process of uh, of extinctions uh, as some people uh, call it, and uh, yeah, so not yeah, to
0: like downplay like, the real victories there, but I just I guess I I was just I was more thinking from. Uh, like from a lot of kind of settler perspectives, like that's often seen as like the height of the po- of of political possibility. You know, is this kind of like inclusion yeah. within a, a shared sense of universal value, um, as opposed yeah. to some kind of more more interesting form of uh, like dialogue between these different forms of value or something like this.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, there's one, uh, there's one law firm called first people's law that are really law because they're, they're, they're fighting for the recognition of indigenous rights. But at the same time, they're very, very, very critical of the whole legal process and, and, and judicial system in Canada as being based on false premises, you know, and, and, and as being based on unilateral assertions of sovereignty from the crown, which is kind of fucked up because, uh, you know, you have like people who have like, such generous rights that have been there for for thousands of years. We need to have their rights recognized now by people who've been there for like maybe two centuries, you know, like, uh, what
2: the fuck? But anyway. So, uh, so your book, uh, Anarcho-Indigenism or L'Anarcho-Indigenisme, uh, help, helpfully responds to, uh, you know, this uh, discursive gap in the left uh there you know there is a splintered left and uh it it do, it can seem common for people to kind of overlook the kind of internal structures of sexism, racism and colonialism that uh exists in left-wing thought uh, and you know these internal structures i think really need to be Uh, addressed. And I I feel like uh, Lanarko Indigenisma starts to do some of of that work. And I think that this kind of work is really important because when you think about splintering effect of uh, the political left, there has been a a fragmentation of the kind of revolutionary energy that you might be able to synthesize uh, and, you know, use to kind of build solidarity between different groups. And I I wanted to ask, I guess, in your research, what would you say uh, the European tradition of anarchism has overlooked that might obstruct the union of the practices of anarchism and decolonization? And are there ways in which anarchism knowingly or unknowingly perpetuates forms of colonial domination that you've come across? Hmm.
1: That's quite a large question to be honest. And uh, I'd say, I'd start by saying that anarchism is first and foremost, a European philosophy and political ideology, right? So, um, it is based on modern European ways of understanding the world. It is based on the idea of linear progress of civilization. And, uh, even though many anarchists were among the first to fight for the liberation of all people and, and even indigenous people, you know, I'm thinking of uh, Elisabeth Kluge, for instance, their worldview was inseparable from conceptions of linear progress and so on, which are conceptions that are part of what, uh, of what some call sorry, coloniality of thought, of being. or of so With this being said, I don't want to summarize anarchism only through its European tradition, I don't think that the intellectual framework of anarchism is incompatible with decolonization, particularly given anarchism's tendency for decentralization and diversity. Um, In my knowledge, one of the things that may prevent anarchists from engaging positively with decolonization efforts is the reluctance of Western anarchists to give credit to non-materialistic worldviews. Anarchists, and particularly white and male anarchists, uh, tend to see spirituality and religion as either the opium of the people, as a stupid waste of time, or as a sign of conservatism. But considering how a lot of decolonial struggles are waged by people for whom spirituality and religion have nothing to do with the European monotheistic understanding of religion or of religiosity, uh, this can be a real problem. And um, I also want to mention that this has implications in terms of gender equality. Uh, I I remember a study that was done by a McGill researcher called uh, Erika Lagerlis. I remember reading about it when I started my PhD. So it's at least more than 10 years old. It's probably like from 15 years ago. But it was regarding a tour done by uh, a San couple in Quebec where uh, it was a tour that was organized by, by anarchist groups in Quebec, working in solidarity with the separatists in, in, in Mexico. And so, this this uh, the scholar uh, noticed she, she was she was an anarchist too, and she noticed that the woman separatista got more or less ignored and pushed away uh, during the tour by the mostly white and male anarchist audience and organizers because she talked a lot about the importance of religion and spirituality uh, in. Or daily practices and in the daily practices of the Sephardtism, uh, you know, because this is, you know, a, uh, a form of uh, this a gender gendered separation of work, you know, in, in the community as in many others. Uh and, and this was like 15 years ago, but I don't think things have changed that much in that regard, like, I mean, in, in the relationship that a lot of uh, anarchists have with religiosity and, and with, with spirituality. The other thing that, that bothers me a little bit, or actually quite a lot, uh with with some anarchists is um the almost completing ignorance of a lot of white anarchists when it comes to issues regarding racism and racialization. And uh the inability of some anarchists to take that kind of repression seriously in their political activity. We too often hear anarchists using the idea that talking about race is actually racist, you know, or that racism is just a byproduct of capitalism and statism, yeah. which is the right. <laughs> but uh <laughs> you know, the, the, the idea that yeah. follows from that for them is that you know we should really focus on class struggle and slashing right. the state and blah yeah. blah Just blah. As though because but it has those
0: origins, it means it's not
1: real or something like this, which is really yeah, 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 exactly, right. So to me, it all boils down to to dogma and to uh, inability of some artists to think critically and strategically about the present situation and about themselves, which is a shame. Uh, so. And I did write quite a lot about the complex relationship between anarchism, which, again, is mostly a white movement. Uh, and, and so between the relationship between anarchism and racial issues for my dissertation, where I analyzed a debate that took place between different Montreal anarchists uh, in 2016. Uh, this debate took place after a demonstration uh, honoring the life of a young Anishinaabic man uh, named Sandy michel had been killed by police in the community of Lac-Simon a short time before. And that demonstration had been organized by a grouping of indigenous and settler groups and and, and individuals. And uh, it was backed by the community of Lac-Simon. And uh, a lot of kids and elders uh, were present at the demonstration. So uh, it had been collectively decided among the organizers that the demonstration would remain remain peaceful as not to put the indigenous members of the community in danger, uh, especially concerning that indigenous people are more criminalized, uh, much more criminalized than uh, than white protesters, generally
2: And policed a lot more, too. Oh yeah, definitely.
1: So it was advertised at the beginning of, of the demonstration, you know, people, during the speech people talked and said that, you know, we, we wanted to, to to remain peaceful. This is not a demonstration to, to smash the states, it's a demonstration to honor the life of someone and to, to create collectively. But along the way, some self-proclaimed uh, insurrectionalists decided that they'd throw stuff at the police, which uh, ended up poorly, uh, with the demonstration being repressed and people fleeing. And this unilateral decision by a handful of so-called insurrectionalists destroyed the trust that the organizers had managed to build between the community of and the anarchist individuals and groups that had set up uh, the demonstration. So it was a huge setback at the time uh, in the solidarity between uh, between settler and new activists in Montreal, basically, and outside of Montreal in Quebec. Uh, which is something that, like, anarchists tend to think of themselves as being naturalized to indigenous people, but indigenous people are like most other people. What they know about anarchists is, is what they see in the news and, and what they see on the streets. So, like, uh, they they the way to see anarchists is as uh, crusty punks who don't bathe uh, and, you know, eat garbage and, like, to destroy uh, to stuff, <laughs> right? To smash windows. <laughs> so for, for a lot of people, for a lot of people in the communities, like, anarchism, they don't, they don't want to hear about it. You know, they don't want it. They don't want kind of, that, that kind of trouble. They do kind of, that, that kind of destruction. They don't want to be associated with that. Um, so, what's interesting in the debate that followed between one of the, one of the, Uh, decolonial anarchist organizer, uh, and uh, between him and a spokesperson for the insurrectionists that had started the riot, is that both of them used the same source to justify their respective behaviors. Uh, They both referred extensively to uh, the zine called uh, Accomplice Not Lies that was published uh, south of the border by uh, by a group of uh, uh, indigenous activists. So both sides were fully aware of racial issues and how to take them into account while organizing in-between communities. But one side decided that smashing the state, which is, I mean, a big word to say for a stones at a handful of cops. But <laughs> that side decided that smashing the state trumped building trust in mm-hmm. communities. And it, it's hard not to see such a wild interpretation and prioritization of anarchist desires as not being the byproduct of a sense of anarchist entitlement, which to me cannot really be separated from the fact that anarchist organizations in North America are overwhelmingly white, you know, and this is something that has been denounced by Black anarchist groups, you know, particularly in the U.S. Like, this is something that, if you're interested with by, by the question, like just. Uh, there's a bunch of articles on the topic and there's a bunch of, you know, like uh, black anarchists are usually a little bit wary of, of anarchists because they don't, they don't feel welcomed in, in, in those communities and so that's, that's a general problem. So I'd I say that it's less anarchism that must be questioned there and, and, and more anarchists themselves, you know, uh, because at the end of the day, anarchism lives only through anarchist individuals and communities. So when those individuals and communities are reverent, are, sorry, overwhelmingly settler, and white, uh, they will tend to perpetuate colonial and racial forms of domination,
0: whether they want to or not. It's very aggrandized to say you're smashing the state by just like starting a riot at a. Of- a, a funeral basically or a memorial you know and uh it, that that, yeah. that does kind of smack of that kind of uh, more like a self-expressive style of doing politics rather than trying to build coalitions you know to really uh, like build power across mass base right it's mostly spectacular yeah. you know It's uh, yeah. and that's
1: that's that's one of the reasons why I, i'm I'm a little bit uncomfortable with uh, with the demonstrations that happen every year in Montreal against police brutality cuz it's it's become such a spectacle every year. I mean, I understand why people do it and I I support it cuz it's 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 uh, I think it is essential to 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 protest against police brutality, but you know, when when that demonstration ends up exactly the same way every year and it is just a, a show both for the cops and for the anarchists what are we doing really you know like it's all fun and games but what's what's yeah, you know anyway that was my uh, my uh, two seconds of uh, sounding like conservative
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah sometimes a turn
1: of phrase you're like wait a second where does it yeah, end? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. yeah. yeah well you know I've been a kid now so I'm essentially an old guy I'm just uh, living
2: you're, in the country you're pretty much you know, petit bourgeois at this kids. point yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. exactly. yeah. uh, just just, kidding, just kidding. i don't yeah. have any time to you know like smash uh like smash <laughs> starbucks anymore like. yeah the starbucks <laughs>
0: yeah so yeah let's uh just kind of switch up the discussion a little bit thinking about uh practice and strategy for emancipation a little bit more Um, the question of social emancipation varies from one culture, people and group, uh, to the next. So there have been various attempts at articulating what it may look like. Given that there are multiple forms of social organization under capitalism, as well as a broad range of histories and frames of oppression, there are unsurprisingly numerous revolutionary avenues uh, towards emancipation. Focusing on our context in particular, therefore, what is your position on the state, Uh, in case you didn't like our big questions here, and how would you define the term? (laughs) Uh, Some might say that the state could be a means for the rapid and mass transformation of society, such as we have seen under uh, COVID-19, bracketing the question of its success for now. And uh, many people... (laughs) Especially settlers uh, view the state as a necessary vector for social change. Uh, So yeah, and a kind of a related question uh, is, do you think the notion of the state can be decolonized or deconstructed, or are we better off envisioning a future without this kind of
1: language or structure? Well, uh, let me answer briefly your second question, because that's that's a very easy answer. Uh, The answer is no. I don't think the state can be decolonized, mostly because the state is one of the most important agents of colonialism and one of its main beneficiaries. So I don't know if can deconstruct it can be deconstructed. I'm not really sure what, what, what that means when we apply that to yeah. the states. But uh, what I know as a political scientist is that the powerful will never willfully like, let go of their power. Uh, and I subscribe to the idea that the state is always at the hands of a small political and economic minority, and that that minority shares the same culture and depends on the existence of the state for the privileges. Uh, but more seriously, though, uh, let's, let's take a step back and answer some of the things that you said earlier. Um, to answer your question about what is the state, I'd say the state is essentially uh, three things it is a particular mode of power, uh, it is a particular structure of organization. And it is a culture. So uh, it is a mode of power. So it is based on sovereignty. It is based on the monopoly of legitimate violence, which outside um, looks like the army and inside the borders of the state looks like the police. And it is a uh, regulating authority. So that's the first point. It is also a structure. It is a particular structure. Uh, It is an an administrative structure with more or less centralists. Management. Um, it is also uh, in charge of welfare, of taxation, and it is uh, represented by borders, by state borders. And a uh, third point, it's a culture. So, what I mean by that is that we are made to think that the state is inescapable. Uh, we're made to think that the state is the highest form of political organization. Uh, this is how we're educated in our societies, right? Like, it will take some chance or some efforts on your part to actually uh, think otherwise. So why do people see the state as a necessary vector for social change? Uh, I think there are three main reasons that are linked to the three things mm-hmm. that I said about what the state is. Uh, I think the first one linked to the mode of power is that people fear the state. People fear the consequences of not obeying the state or of not obeying the law, basically, or not obeying law and order. Uh, second thing is people see the state as a necessary vector for social change because the state answers their needs, you know, uh, through welfare, for instance. Uh, And third, and this is the most easy answer, people see the state as a necessary vector for social change because as it is everywhere and as it shapes our political imagination, we are made to think that Anything done outside of the, the boundaries of the state or against the state is is doomed to fail. You know, this is this is basically what traditional or orthodox communists will say. You know, you have to take power, you have to 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 monopolize the the, the instrument of power to to be able to actually uh, create a revolution, which is not entirely false. I mean, um, Lenin. This is the the classical conception of, of, of right. revolution. But I do not think that in, in terms of colonization and, and colonialism, I, I do not think that it would work. Um so we live in a time where for good or bad, people are starting to question state power. You know, and particularly uh, with the pandemic. Um I'm just really sad that this questioning of state power during the pandemic is being hijacked by uh, conservative reactionary and conservationist forces. I think this 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 questioning of the state is the product of the state slashing social budgets and, and, and putting the private sector in charge of welfare, which it can really do, right? Because you can do it, but you cannot do it properly, mostly because welfare is incompatible with the social profit. Uh, and looking at the U.S. should be... A, a, a good enough example of, of, of what I'm saying. Um, so as anarchists, we have a chance here to explore what some uh, call the tactic of dual power. I remember reading about it in uh, the articles of uh, a scholar called uh, Dana Williams, who uh, also worked on black anarchism. So it's a really good reference to, uh, to know and to read. It's, it's, uh, his work is quite interesting. And um, if I remember well, the idea of dual power first appears in in Mm -hmm. Lenin's work. So uh, I I do not know exactly how Lenin uses it, but what I get of the idea is that um, basically uh, the idea is having collectively owned franchise organizations replacing state-sponsored or private organizations in delivering essential services to people so like you're essentially what you're doing is essentially bypassing public and private services and building community support and resilience an example of that would be uh the breakfast programs that were created by black panthers for instance mm-hmm. um so it allows to adopt harm reduction practices uh to have actual accountability to build trust to build autonomy uh collective autonomy and individual autonomy uh It's definitely not easy to do because it takes resources. It takes a lot of manpower and good horizontal organizing. And all these things are not always very easy to get, right? So, but it is doable and we're seeing it happen. Uh, And it can take many faces too. And to me, for instance, the creation of uh, livelihood fisheries outside of tax regulations by the Mi'kmaq in Southern Nova Scotia is an example Mm -hmm. of that. Uh, This doesn't mean that other ways of fighting against the state are not good um, i think that on the contrary sabotaging for instance and actively fighting against, against the state are complementary to uh, the tactic of dual power but uh you know if if you want to create a new society uh you you'll need saboteurs and soldiers but you also need new, you also need nurses right midwives you really know, need farmers you'll need Generally, resilient to me uh, because the state will always end up fighting back, right? So, uh, you'll stand under the radar for a while, but not always. And when you day come, you'll need all the support you can get. So, to me, the most difficult part is, and I think to a lot of people, the most difficult part is making people realize they're better off without the state. Because right now, in, in this day and age, uh, it is actually quite hard to prove. Uh, because, you know, you We've got to admit that uh, life under state rule and under capitalism is easier and more comfortable for a whole lot of people, even though the only way this kind of life goes is right in the wall. So, uh, and particularly in places like Quebec and Canada, where where our entire culture is shaped around consumption, you know, capitalist consumption. Like, you need a new car, you need a new swimming pool, you need whatever. Even segments of societies that are traditionally considered, you know, revolutionary. By uh, you know Orthodox Marxists like workers, for instance, or workers' organizations. I don't think that workers, that the workers segments of society in Canada, are particularly revolutionaries. I think they're really, really happy of having you know jobs in the extractive industry and making a shitload of money every year in order to buy themselves a new car. I don't think they care that much about revolution. I kind of understand. I mean, it's it's comfortable and it's easy, but. Um,
0: and it's hard to have those kind of uh, uh, counter examples, you know, of uh, a stateless life that looks uh, viable for a lot of people, you know, on that large scale.
1: Um, yeah. More people start thinking that you hear you're a hippie, you know, or that, you know, which. I mean, it's not entirely false. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that kind of lifestyle is. Is mean, that yeah. so
0: bad, man? <laughs>
1: <laughs> but um, I mean, it's it's conundrum really. I don't know how to answer that, and uh, I think a lot of people live the same conundrum too. Yeah, yeah sure.
0: Um. Yeah. So in one of our previous episodes, we interviewed a couple that spent time volunteering for an organization in the neighborhood of Exarchia in Athens, Greece, uh, which has become a kind of center for alternative politics, forms of community and autonomy. Uh, they described it as a center that helps create a, quote, movement movement. Um, I've noticed that Unistoten Camp accepts non-Indigenous volunteers on certain conditions and that the Red Nation is composed of Indigenous and non-Indigenous members. In your own work, have you come across other forms of organizing or community that might serve as centers for giving shape to Indigenous settler solidarity that are working to build an alternative future politics, or is there a lack there?"
1: To be honest, uh, I, I'm i not sure I'm the right person to answer that question because uh, I'm first and foremost someone who works on this course and I haven't been involved in building solidarity on the ground for a while for, for a few different reasons. that are some that are linked to my condition of being an immigrant, which means that I try to lay low and try not to be criminalized to avoid getting sent back forever to the country <laughs> i <I'm 17, laughs> uh, which is... I mean, you might think that it's something that does not really happen, but I, get, I kind of got a, a, a wake-up call uh, a few days, uh, not a few days, a few years ago uh, while at the university. I went to, um, to a conference about, you know, uh, what is uh, what are the consequences of having a, uh, what do you call that, a criminal, uh, a criminal file? Uh, criminal record. Uh, criminal record, thank you, um, in terms of... Uh, Housing, in terms of a job, in terms of immigration, uh, and so um, what I learned is that um, if you're um, if you're found guilty of certain types of, of uh, federal offenses, which can be something as simple as uh, drunk driving, um, you can lose your right of being in the country, if you're, if, if even if you're a permanent resident, you know the only thing that will stop you from being expelled from the country is being a citizen. Uh, so, and you can, and when you're expelled, it it's for life, like you, are <laughs> <you're> gone. <laughs> uh, so, um, and you know, organizing um, in terms of uh, decolonial struggles is something that is. Uh, Let's be honest. Yeah. It is dangerous. I mean, just, people yeah. face the brunt force of the state and the law when they when they're caught. So, um, so uh, I'm a coward, and uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to lose the life that I've built here. Um, so that's that's it. it. And also, the other the other main reason is that I. I I, I felt like a, a growing deception regarding the sort of in-house culture of the movements that I've been part of in the past, particularly the student and artists movement in Montreal. So uh, now I do organize on the ground within my small, remote community by getting my hands dirty, by giving back to my community, by growing food, by supporting food security. But this is something that I do from home, and I'm more of a close uh, than an actual uh, prominent activist. And uh, I'm also a little bit pessimistic regarding the possibility of actual decolonization in Quebec due to the overwhelming presence of uh, the sovereigns Québécois culture here, which comes with a general disinterest by the general population regarding colonial issues. And for issues generally that can be summarized simply as Quebec against Canada or French against English or regions against Montreal. This being said, um, I think the best way to give shape to indigenous civil solidarity is to first build trust between uh, indigenous and civil communities, which, uh, let's be honest, is really hard. Um, indigenous communities do not trust civil communities most of the time, and they have very good reasons for that. Uh, so to me, this is where the idea of reconciliation can mm-hmm. make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and when I'm talking about reconciliation here, I'm not talking about reconciliation in the way the uh, is putting this idea forward, uh, which is a state sponsored way to make amends and just move forward. Um, I think acknowledging past wrongdoings is good, but uh, acknowledging the twisted nature of the society we live in in the present day is yeah. even better. And um, I think reparations must be made, and I think settlers need to be proactive in this. Um, so the complicated aspect of this is that spaces outside of indigenous communities and environments are more often than not settler or immigrant centered, uh, sorry. And uh, many people who get involved in the spaces often end up being tokenized. Uh, on the contrary, spaces within indigenous communities and environments that are open to non-indigenous people are very few, and settlers are not always welcome there. Again, for a good reason So... Yeah, I mean, we have to remember that all the debates that we see nowadays, you know, regarding the place that we have as allies or accomplices to native struggles, uh, those debates have been going on for a number of years. And I would say for a very long time, actually. Uh, and some communities are tired of always having to cater to say things um, so, so some of them decide to do stuff on their own, you know, and we should accept that, uh, because this is something that I did not mention when I talked about what colonization is, but decolonization comes with the possibility that as settlers we may not be welcomed in reclaimed spaces Um, and we have to come to terms with that we have to accept that i know it's 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 a it's a big chunk you know to uh to get over personally i feel i feel good about that and it might be because i'm an immigrant so i don't feel at home here you know uh (laughs) so to speak or i feel at home but i know it's not my home you know And I know I will never be considered part of. uh, I'll never be considered the same member of society as if I had been born here. So uh, I don't feel too bad about not being welcome in in these spaces because I feel that it's normal. Um, I'm I'm used to that reality. But yeah, um, like you don't feel entitled to it. (laughs) No, exactly. Um, But this being said, uh, we can always act in support, right? And this is where we build trust. As an example, for instance, like, imagine, like, uh, that a community close to where you live is organizing a blockade. Uh, they mentioned they don't want people from outside of the community attending the blockade. This doesn't mean that you have to stay silent or not do anything and sit on your ass all day long. Like, you can, most of the time, during these seven of events, there's a possibility of uh, reaching a spokesperson. Uh, so you can always do that and inquire what you can do. Uh, and again, I think it is important to be corrective you know, to offer solutions, not just call and say, Hey, what can I do? Uh, You can just call and say, well, do you guys need anything? Do you, you know, uh, help you with food, something you need, you know, do you need blankets, do you need stuff, this, money, do you need to set up something? I think the most important thing, again, is always accountability, right? So if you want to help, uh, you need to make sure that the help that you want to bring is needed. uh, And you need to make sure that the help you want to bring is welcome. Uh, because no one cares about good intentions, you know. Uh, I usually like to say that good intentions are like assholes, like everybody's got one, you know. And it's, uh, it, it doesn't bring us anywhere. Like, it's, it's good to have good intentions, but if you have good intentions and do badly, it's worse than I bad intentions and good yeah. you know. Um, and your good intentions are not really worth much of wasting people's energy and time on something that could have been avoided.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: so um yeah i think that, that that would be my answer i know it's a bit disappointing because i'm I do not i don't have a grand solution on how to build settler yeah I mean, it's just solidarity but uh, i don't think anybody
0: has well exactly yeah measures. these are incredibly um complex questions and uh issues you know and navigating our own um kind of settler identities like naturally uh we want to ask these kinds of questions but i think it's actually helpful to resist simplistic solutions or like you know give an answer that just makes us feel good or it's like oh yeah it's all gonna totally work out like yeah Mm -hmm. no that sense of um being unwelcome in spaces uh you know those kind of things like Uh, those are things we're going to have to get comfortable with if we're serious about um, decolonization and justice you know and instead of uh seeing um kind of concessions as a uh or, or 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 moves towards reparations as like a gift or something or a concession but instead you know um Aren't those just acknowledgments of, of realities, you know, if we're really willing to uh, look at them seriously? So I, I think that it kind of – the answer to that question is bound to be somewhat unsatisfying from the perspective of, of a settler mm-hmm. who wants to be, like, welcome and part of something, you know, uh, especially yeah. – when you think about the kind of you, you were talking about the uh, how basically the culture of workers amongst the settler population is like just purely consumeristic, you know. So if you are someone who uh, feels this kind of spiritual hunger and like the 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 dead the deadness or at the heart of that uh, cultural milieu, then you are looking for like, oh yeah, isn't isn't decolonization just going to be like this great big like welcome and like this spiritual renewal? And I think that maybe that is mm-hmm. like a little bit overs- oversimplified and uh, that having those kind of complexities as part of the answer is, is important. So, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know what, on that note, maybe we could kind of wrap up then. Um, so yeah, um, yeah, let me just say, uh, Ben, thank you so much uh, for joining us and for uh, being so generous with your time. You know, this has been, you know, a pretty long conversation and uh, we've covered a ton of ground here. It's been really, really great to kind of hear your wisdom and your insights. So I'm just so, uh, so grateful for that. And um, I'm kind of excited to go back through this conversation and put it out there. So thanks a yeah, lot. Yeah,
1: thanks well, thanks, thanks a lot to you guys. I mean, it's uh, it's always a pleasure to talk about that, and it's uh, I, I kind of feel lonely sometimes, <laughs> you know, especially during the pandemic, yeah. and uh, and, uh, and so yeah, I'm always happy to to share some thought about this, and just just remember that these are only my thoughts and. I'm just a white guy working on this, so my my viewpoint yeah. is very limited. And uh, you should you should first and foremost listen to what indigenous people say on these topics. So, and, and yeah. if, if you, you want to have references on on what what other people say on this, uh, well, you can read my dissertation. You know? <laughs> 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 It's, it's somewhere on the cloud, it's it? somewhere on okay. the internet. Is, is yeah, could people
0: if, it is. Uh, so this is uh, is this something that would be easy for people to find? Do you have like a link that we could uh, share?
1: Uh, sure, I could I could send you a link. Uh, however, um, I I feel the need to mention that it's in, it's written in French, so. Uh, so there's that. Uh, there's a lot of uh, of quotes by people uh, in English in the, the station, that like the, the text yeah. itself and, <laughs> it's in French. So uh, it's, it's good for the references, but if you don't speak or read French, it's, it's, it might be a little bit difficult. And keep in mind also that it's, uh, it's an academic work, so it's, it, it can totally. be pretty cool. So
0: if someone has kind of made it this far, and let's say there's someone who is pretty relatively new to thinking about decolonization in a serious way, but they're kind of, you know, well-meaning, and this is like maybe struck a chord, would you have kind of reading recommendations or um, something to kind of point them in the right direction for next Steps.
1: Yeah, I think you should start with uh decolonization is not a metaphor. I think it's uh it's it's the best article uh that's out there talking about uh or actually giving good good ideas, good good details about how we should think about decolonization. You know. Nothing else comes to mind because there's so many things that I could that I could mention, but uh maybe I'll we'll think of something and I'll I'll send yeah. you a link yeah we uh, could put awesome.
0: we'll we'll throw some references in uh, in the show notes as well. Exactly. so okay. all right good. very cool man. All right, awesome. Yeah. thanks so much. Yeah. thanks a lot. If you've uh, been listening with us this far, thanks for uh, joining us. I hope there were uh, some good bits of this conversation that kind of spark a thought. And uh, if you're excited about this stuff, we would uh, love to hear more from you. So uh, feel free to reach out to us and uh, yeah, we'll uh, see you next time.